Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. We experienced a special day in our family, January 4th of this year. My brother had organized a birthday party to celebrate the 200th birthday of Gustavus Adolphus Perry. I'm certain we were the only family in the country celebrating a birthday for one who was born 200 years ago. Gustavus was the first member of our family tree to join the church. He was baptized in 1832. The Perry family history records this remarkable event. On a beautiful farm in the state of New York, Gustavus Adolphus Perry and his good wife, Eunice Wing, with their sons, Orn Alonzo, Lorenzo, and Henry Elisha, and their daughters, Rosalie Elvira, Elvina, Amanda, and Lucy, were very peacefully and happily living. Close to the end of the close to the beginning of the year of 1830, we do not know the exact date. One evening, after a light snow had fallen, the family was all in for the night. It was dark, and the latch string had been drawn in so that no one could enter the house. Then suddenly, without warning, a stranger came into the home and greeted the family with these words, God bless you. He spent the night explaining the principles of the gospel and told them of a new book called the Book of Mormon and quoted passages from the same. He then told them on what pages they would find the quotes he had just given them, and soon elders would come to their door to visit them. The messenger disappeared in the morning just as suddenly as he had appeared the night before, leaving no tracks in the freshly fallen snow. They inquired of their neighbors who had seen him. No one had. No trace of him could be found. This good family was ready for the gospel when the elders came to their door and they joined the church in that year of 1832. The Perrys were like other families that joined the church in the early 1800s. They moved from their home in upstate New York to Ohio, then to the gathering in Missouri. Forced to leave their Missouri home, they moved to Illinois, again driven from their Illinois home in the very cold winter of 1846. They made their way painfully across Iowa and settled in the Lake Branch at Winter's Quarters. Here Gustavus was called to serve in the bishopric until they were instructed in 1852 by Brigham Young to close the ward, join a wagon train, and make the long trek across the plains. Upon their arrival in Utah, he moved his family north to Box Elder County and settled at Three Mile Creek. A few years later, his son, Orn Alonzo, 
became the first bishop. And as was the custom in those days, they named the community after their first bishop. Thus Perry, Utah, received its name. My brother thought that the birthday of Gustavus Perry was significant that we should remember and honor the first member of our family to join the church. As a part of the birthday celebration, my brother had spent a year searching out the descendants of this good man. We were amazed at the records we found on the table before us as we celebrated. He had found over 10,000 descendants of Gustavus Adolphus Perry. The number overwhelmed me. I could not believe that there would be over 10,000 descendants of this first member of our family to join the Church. Suddenly I realized the value of a good name. In seven to eight generations, this family had sufficient numbers, if they'd all stayed together, to organize three stakes of Zion. In, nine, in this year, 1997, we'll celebrate the 150th anniversary of those who made the great trek across the plains to find freedom to worship according to their belief. It seems appropriate that we take time to remember those who did so much for us to bring the gospel to our families. First, each of us has these special accounts in our family history of the sacrifices that were made for us to bless us with the knowledge of the gospel of our Lord and Savior. In some families, you may be the first member to join. Therefore, you become its pioneer family. You have the obligation to record in your history what brought the converting power of the gospel to you for future generations. I thought this morning as we approached this year, this great year of celebration, we should pause to consider the value of our good name. A study of the scriptures certainly demonstrates the Lord's, the importance the Lord places on a good name and the value it has for succeeding generations. One of the most exciting examples I can think of is contained in the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis. It reads, And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and talked with God, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be the father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make thee nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generation, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. The same promise was given to Abraham's son Isaac. When his wife Rebekah had no children, Isaac entreated the Lord in her behalf. She was blessed of the Lord and gave birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau, the great hunter, an outdoorsman. The scriptures record Jacob as a plain man, 
that dwelled in a tent. Esau, in desperation, after coming in hungry from a hunting expedition, entreated Jacob to give him some food. And he sold his birthright to Jacob for the food he obtained. Later, Jacob was blessed by his father to have dominion and rule over people and nations. The blessing that Jacob received angered Esau when he found out his father could not give two birthright blessings. He became so incensed that it was necessary for Jacob to flee because Esau desired his life. En route to the home of his mother's brother, the blessing that was promised to Abraham and Isaac was given to Jacob. The blessing was that the God and God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be Jacob any more, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am the Lord thy God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give it to thee and to thy seed after thee. I will give this land. When Jacob arrived at his uncle's place, he met Rachel tending her father's sheep. He assisted her in watering the flock. The scriptures record that she was a beautiful maid, and Jacob loved Rachel, and arrangements were made for their marriage. He was required to work seven years to receive her hand. You think courtships are hard in this day. At the end of seven years, he approached his mother's brother for the wedding to take place. Anne was informed that it was the custom in their land that the first daughter be married before the second, and he was required to marry Leah, the older sister. At the end of seven days of wedding feasts, he was allowed to marry Rachel, but then had to work another seven years to fulfill his indebtedness. Jacob's marriages blessed him with twelve sons. Great sorrow came to Jacob as Rachel died after giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. Added to his burden was the resentment his other brothers had towards Joseph, the oldest son of Rachel. For Jacob loved Joseph more than all his children. A feeling turned to hatred, and when the opportunity presented itself, his older brother sold Joseph as a slave, and he was carried into Egypt. The Lord blessed Joseph, and he prospered in the land of Pharaoh. And Jacob and his family fell on hard times, and they had to travel to Egypt to find relief from the famine. This led to a reunion and a great reconciliation between Joseph and his brethren. And he told them, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity, in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Later, the Lord, under the, the later under the direction of the Lord, Jacob and all his souls of his house, numbering seventy, traveled to Egypt to be with Joseph. Jacob was overjoyed to see Joseph again. The honor given to Jacob 
was that the Lord had caused his name to be changed to Israel, one who prevailed with God. And as we can see, this name of Jacob changed to Israel became a mighty, mighty great source in the land. But Jacob was name was now Israel and the name that he was to follow. <clears throat> the Lord said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac will be given to you and your seed forever in this land. Later, as the time drew near for Jacob or Israel to die, he called his sons together and blessed him and their seed. Israel's posterity were blessed in many ways, each to receive an inheritance in the land after their return from Egypt. Reuben and Simeon and Levi, because of their unrighteousness, were passed over with the special blessings, even though to the third son, Levi, was later given the priesthood. To Judah was given the blessing that through his posterity would come the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Judah was the natural leader among the sons of Jacob, and the tribes descending from him took the lead after they settled in Egypt. It's always interesting to me that Matthew, and he recording the kingly line of Jesus, the Messiah, would take time to start with the generations of the book of the, our Lord and Savior. He records the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, then on down to the generations, to be certain these tied in to the kingly rule of David. He goes on to quote, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. Then continuing on down, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Matthew wanted to be certain that his people understood that record. His record tied into the prophecies of the Old Testament that the Savior would come through the tribe of Judah, through David the king, thus certifying his legal right to be the chosen Messiah. For this was the line that had been predicted by the prophets of old. Judah, thou art he whom among thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. It was to Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, Israel's second wife, that the birthright blessing was given. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Joseph's blessings were passed on to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus, from the name of Israel came the great promise passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Israel and on to the numerous descendants that they would be scattered in many lands. Thus we see the kingly rule being given to Israel's son Judah, to Joseph the blessing 
given to his descendants that they would be spread to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. This blessing would be extended into the latter days when one called Joseph would be called to bring about the restoration of the gospel. It's always been interesting to me that the prophet Joseph Smith was the third son of Joseph and Lucy Mack Smith. He had two older brothers, yet the name of Joseph was preserved for him. Who could doubt that his life was a fulfillment of the great promise made to Joseph of old, that through his lineage would come the great saving power of the gospel of our Lord and Savior? Let us look briefly at the life of Joseph Smith to see how this was literally fulfilled. Few prophets have come from more humble beginning than that of the prophet Joseph Smith. He was the fifth child in a family of eleven. The rugged, rocky soil of New England had not been good to his family. The climate limited the growing season. During Joseph Smith's early life, his family moved frequently, trying to find fertile soil for a suitable living. They moved from Sharon to Turnbridge, then on to South Royalton, Vermont. In 1811, they moved to a small community of West Lebanon, New Hampshire, and began, as his mother said, to contemplate the joy and satisfaction of our posterity that had attended our recent exertions. His optimism gave way to despair as typhoid fever came to West Lebanon in a terrible epidemic. The epidemic swept through the upper Connecticut Valley, leaving 6,000 people dead. One by one, the Smith children fell ill. It was here that Joseph had the illness and suffered complications that required surgery. The Lord again showed his hand by providing one of the few surgeons who lived in that area who could perform the delicate operation that saved his life and prepared him for the future ahead. The many illnesses left the Smith family destitute, and they had to move again, this time to Norwich, Vermont. Here the Smith family began to form an attempt to wrestle a livelihood out of the difficult Vermont soil. Crops failed three years in a row, prompting the father to again look for another place to provide for his family. If any of you have tried to farm in New England, you know the problem. I tried for a few years to grow a garden, and all I could grow were rocks. Every time you would plow, only rocks would come up. His father heard of a land in upstate New York that had promise. He took what resources he had to pay off his debt and left his family and went to New York to explore the possibility of moving his family there. Once again, we see the hand of the Lord guiding them to the proper destination where the great events in church history would take place. It was in this location that his family settled down and the remarkable events occurred that brought forth the gospel that we have today. Out of this hard, difficult, early beginning, Joseph Smith developed a great reliance on the Lord, trusting in Him to gain the exceptional strength needed so that he could be used by the Lord to organize his church again on the earth. In order to organize the work to begin this dispensation, the Lord needed a pure spirit 
unlearned in the things of the world. He had to have one who could be taught by the ministration of angels. There was no earthly teacher on, equipped to give this training. He had to be truly sensitive to the Spirit, a quick learner, a young man of exceeding great faith, faith enough to approach the Lord after being impressed after reading the epistle in James, which reads, If any of ye lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. This inspired the young man. He took courage and went into the grove of trees and asked God to give him wisdom that he was seeking. This great humble petition of this simple young man brought forth a remarkable change in the thinking of manhood toward the very nature of God. This was the beginning of a whole series of events that occurred in his young life. Having been carefully taught by messengers on high, he was given the great privilege of bringing forth the Book of Mormon, and through miraculous means it was translated and made available to the peoples of the world. Another witness of our Lord and Savior on earth to eliminate the great confusion that was existing among religious sects, even to the very basics of the gospel. He was called to be the first elder, and was called to be the instrument of the Lord in the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ again on the earth. The prophet's life was all too short, but the contribution he made will last into the eternities. His life was taken from him by a cruel mob on the 27th day of June of 1844. He had fulfilled the prophecy. Joseph, son of Joseph, has, been, has had been prophesied in the scriptures, had brought forth a remarkable work in the latter days. Thus we see how the Lord was fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to his seed. The name we have been given is a special blessing to each of us with a heritage by which we can receive the great promises of the Lord to his children, even the gift of life eternal. It has always been of profound interest to me that the first lesson taught to the prophet Joseph Smith by Moroni was the absolute necessity of families being sealed together. That message was recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, section 2. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall be turned to their fathers. Then this sobering line, If it were not so, the whole earth would utterly be wasted at his coming. Think of that. The whole earth utterly wasted if we did not have that great sealing power. For how would our Lord and Savior reign on the earth? He does it by families, family units linked together. The mission of Elijah was re the restoration of the sealing power to bind on earth that which would be bound in the eternities to come, thus making operative on earth the ability to perform the ordinances of the gospel for both the living and the dead. 
This made it possible for the eternal linking of families together. I have always marveled that when men and women understand the gospel and the eternal nature of this unit, how the spirit of Elijah works on them. It even spreads to those who do not understand this doctrine. Genealogy, they tell me, has become the number one hobby in the nation. The spirit of Elijah almost becomes a contagion among the people as it moves to unite family units together. Look at the wide acceptance of PBS and the number of stations carrying the program Ancestors that was produced right here at Brigham Young University. The Encyclopedia of Mormonism tells us this about the mission of Elijah. When Latter-day Saints speak of the spirit of Elijah, they mean at least two things. First, the promise of salvation made to the fathers has been renewed to the modern church. Second, the hearts of men and women have extensively been turned to their, turned to their fathers as an evidenced by the dramatic growth of the number of genealogical societies, libraries, individual genealogical and family history research organizations throughout much of the world. For the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of family kinship and unity. It is the spirit that motivates the concern to search out ancestral family members through family history and on their behalf to perform proxy baptisms, temple endowments, and sealing ordinances. This is seen as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi in the last days of Elijah, that the last day, in the last days Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. As we celebrate the 150th anniversary of the arrival of the Mormon pioneers, as they struggled over the plains from winter quarters to the Salt Lake Valley, it is only natural that our thoughts would be turned to the history of our families and the sacrifices they made to embrace the gospel of our Lord and Savior. Way back in 1966, the Church announced the priesthood genealogy program has been changed to family history. Today, it counseled members in this way. A family book of remembrance in Latter-day Saints' homes should rate as important second only to the standard works. These family records are supplements to the scriptures, aiding and teaching the gospel to the posterity of faithful members of the Church. A knowledge of written testimonies and spiritual experiences of family members and of proved genealogies of the fathers serve to bind the hearts of the children to their fathers and help them understand the doctrines that pertain to the exaltation of the family. Every faithful family should be diligently compiling a book of remembrance. In it should be found stories of the family, especially stories of spiritual life. Written by inspiration, it should also contain genealogies of the family's pedigree chart and family group records so that children may have the opportunity to acquire the knowledge of their fathers. In addition to this, President Spencer W. Kimball taught about the personal benefit there is from keeping a book of remembrance. He said, 
Keeping journals reminds us of the blessings. Those who kept books of remembrance are more likely to keep the Lord in remembrance in their daily lives. Journals are a way of counting our blessings and leaving an inventory of these blessings for our posterity. As I have studied the history of our family, I have learned how they sacrificed so much for the gospel. I have grown to appreciate the value of a good name. It has built within me a greater desire to do what I can to honor our good family name. It has also impressed upon me the responsibility I have for future generations. If I were to bring dishonor to this name, and our family continues to grow as it has in the past generations, it could influence many, many thousands who would be limited in their eternal blessings. Proverbs declared this, A good family name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than gold and silver. We cannot isolate ourselves from those around us. A good name can be a special, a special valued asset worth more than the riches of the world. In the Lord's grand design for His children, He placed families as the centerpiece of His organizational structure. The scriptures always have their beginning in a family setting. The Old Testament, we have the story of Adam and Eve. The New Testament begins with the genealogy of our Savior, the Book of Mormon, first lines, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, the Doctrine and Covenants, the first section given, Moroni, visit to the prophet Joseph Smith to remind us of the visitation of Elijah the prophet. The Pearl of Great Price, again, the story of our first earthly parents. Your good name connects you with your past family history, your righteous living, your example, your teachings, your worthwhile service will bless numerous people with your vision. It's almost impossible to comprehend the number. May Lord, the Lord bless you with a greater understanding of His great plan of happiness and your special role in it. I add my witness to the many who have stood at this place over the many, many years that families are important. Your name is special. It is recorded in the histories of our Father in Heaven. Now, how you value that, how you treat it, will literally affect generations to come. God bless you with the vision that is yours of who you are and the great privilege it is yours to belong to the Church of Jesus Christ. God lives. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. We are part of that great plan that He's laid out for us for our eternal glory as my witness to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. 
please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.